Chapter 32 of The Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand. Translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 32. Consuela was awakened at break of day by the sound of horns and the barking of dogs. When Matthias brought her breakfast, he informed her that there was a great battue of deer and wild boars in the forest, situated behind the rock on the confines of the park. More than a hundred guests, he said, were assembled at the chateau for this lordly diversion. Consuelo understood that a great number of the associates of the order had come together under pretext of hunting at this chateau, the principal rendezvous of their most important meetings. She was rather frightened at the idea that she would perhaps have all these men as witnesses of her initiation, and asked herself if it was indeed a matter sufficiently interesting in the eyes of the order to occasion so great a concourse of its members. She endeavored to read and to meditate, in order to conform to the prescriptions of the initiator. But she was still more distracted by an internal emotion and by vague fears than by the flourishes of horns, the galloping of horses, and the baying of the bloodhounds, which made the surrounding woods echo all day long. Was this hunt real or pretended? Had Albert been so converted to all the customs of common life as to take part in it, and to shed without terror the blood of innocent animals? Would not Liverani quit this party of pleasure, and under cover of the disorder come to trouble the neophyte in the secret of her retreat? Consuelo saw nothing of what passed without, and Liverani did not come. Matthias, too busy, doubtless, at the chateau to think of her, brought her no dinner. Was this, as Supperville pretended, a fast designedly imposed in order to weaken the mental powers of the adept. She was resigned. Towards night, when she returned to the library, which she had left an hour before, in order to take the air, she recoiled with affright at seeing a man, clothed in red and masked, seated in her armchair. But she was immediately reassured, for she recognized the feeble old man who served her so to speak, as spiritual father. My child, said he, rising and coming to meet her, have you nothing to say to me? Have I still your confidence? You have, sir, replied Consuelo, making him resume his seat in the armchair and taking a stool beside him in the embrasure of the window. I have earnestly desired to speak with you, and for a long time. Then she faithfully related to him, all that had passed between herself, Albert, and the unknown since her last confession, and she concealed none of the involuntary emotion she had experienced. When she had concluded, the old man kept silence so long as to trouble and embarrass Consuelo. Pressed by her to judge her conduct and feelings, he replied at last, Your conduct is excusable, almost irreproachable. But what can I say of your feelings? That sudden, insurmountable, and violent affection, which is called love, 
is a consequence of the good or bad instincts which God has placed in souls or allowed to penetrate them that they may be perfected or punished in this life. Bad human laws, which thwart in almost all things the will of nature and the designs of providence, often make that a crime which is an inspiration from God and curse the feeling which he had blessed, while they sanction infamous unions, degrading instincts. It belongs to us, exceptional legislators, hidden architects of a new society, to distinguish as far as possible legitimate and true love from culpable and vain love, in order to pronounce, in the name of a purer, more generous and more moral law than that of the world upon the lot which you deserve. Are you willing to trust in this to our decision? Will you grant us the power to bind and to loose you? You inspire me with an absolute confidence. I have told you so, and I repeat it. Well, Consuelo, we will deliberate upon this question of life and death for your soul and that of Albert. And shall I not have the right to cause the cry of my conscience to be heard? Yes, to enlighten us. I, who have heard it, will be your advocate. You must release me from the secret of your confession. What? Will you no longer be the only confidant of my private feelings, of my combats, of my sufferings? If you were to request a divorce before a tribunal, would you not be obliged to make public complaints? That suffering will be spared you. You have no complaint to make of anyone. Is it not more pleasant to confess love than to declare hatred? Is it enough to feel a new love in order to have a right to abjure the old? You have never felt love, Albert. It seems to me that I have not, yet I would not swear it. You would have no doubt if you had loved him. Besides, the question which you ask carries its own answer. Every new love excludes the old by the force of things. Do not decide that too quickly, my father, said Consuelo with a sad smile, because I love Albert otherwise than the other. I do not love him less than in the past. Who knows if I do not love him more? I feel ready to sacrifice to him this unknown, the thought of whom deprives me of sleep and makes my heart beat at this moment while speaking to you. Is it not the pride of duty, the ardor of sacrifice rather than affection, which counsels you to this kind of preference for Albert? I believe not. Are you very sure of it? Recollect that you are here far from the world, protected from its judgments, beyond its laws. If we give you a new formula and new notions of duty, will you persist in preferring the happiness of the man whom you do not love to that of him whom you do love? Have I ever said that I did not love Albert? cried Consuelo quickly. I can only answer your question by other questions, my daughter. Can you have two loves at the same time in your heart? Yes, two different loves. A woman loves her brother and her husband at the same time. But not her husband and her lover. The rights of the husband and of the brother are different, in fact. Those of the husband and the lover would be the same, unless the husband consented to become a brother. 
then the law of marriage would be broken in what it has most mysterious, most private, and most holy. It would be a divorce, wanting only the publicity. Answer me, Consuelo. I am an old man on the brink of the grave, and you a child. I am here as your father, as your confessor. I cannot alarm your modesty by this delicate question, and I hope that you will reply with courage. In the enthusiastic friendship with which Albert inspired you, have you not always felt a secret and insurmountable terror at the idea of his caresses? It is true, replied Consuelo, blushing. That idea was not ordinarily mingled with that of his love. It seemed foreign to it, but when it did present itself, the chill of death passed through my veins. And the breath of the man whom you know under the name of Liberani has given you the fire of life? That also is true, but should not such instincts be stifled by the will? By what right? Has God suggested them for nothing? Has he authorized you to abjure your sex, to pronounce in marriage the vow of virginity, or that more horrible and more degrading still of serfdom? The passiveness of the slave has in it something which resembles the coldness and brutishness of prostitution. Is it in the designs of God that a being such as you are should be so far degraded? Woe to the children that are born of such unions. God inflicts upon them some disgrace, an incomplete, delirious, or stupid organization. They bear the seal of disobedience. They do not belong entirely to humanity, for they have not been conceived according to the law of humanity, which wills a reciprocity of ardor, a community of aspirations between the man and the woman. There where this reciprocity does not exist, there is no equality, and there where equality is broken, there is no real union. Be certain, therefore, that God, far from commanding such sacrifices to your sex, rejects them and denies to it the right of making them. That suicide is as criminal and still more cowardly than the renunciation of life. The vow of virginity is anti-human and anti-social, but the sacrifice without love is something monstrous in that sense. Think well of it, Consuelo, and if you persist in annihilating yourself to that degree, reflect upon the part which you would reserve to your husband if he accepted your submission without understanding it. Unless he were deceived, he would never accept it, as I need not tell you, but, abused by your devotedness, transported by your generosity, would he not soon appear to you strangely selfish or gross in his error? Would you not degrade him in your own eyes? Would you not degrade him in reality before God by laying that snare for his candor and by furnishing to him that almost irresistible opportunity to succumb? Where would be his greatness? Where would be his delicacy if he did not perceive the paleness on your lips and the tears rolling in your eyes? Can you flatter yourself that hatred would not, in spite of yourself, enter your heart with the shame and the grief of not having been understood or divined? No, woman, you have not the right to deceive love in your bosom. 
you would rather have that of suppressing it. Whatever cynical philosophers may have said, respecting the passive condition of the feminine species in the order of nature, that which will always distinguish the companion of man from that of the brute, is discernment in love and the right of choice. Vanity and cupidity make the greater part of marriages a legalized prostitution, according to the expression of the ancient lawlords. Devotedness and generosity may lead a simple mind to similar results. Virgin, it was my duty to instruct you in delicate matters which the purity of your life and of your thoughts prevented you from foreseeing or analyzing. When a mother gives her daughter in marriage, she half reveals to her, with more or less wisdom and modesty, the mysteries which she had concealed from her until that hour. A mother was wanting to you when you pronounced, with an enthusiasm more fanatical than human, the oath to belong to a man whom you loved in an incomplete manner. A mother is given to you at this day to assist and enlighten you in new resolutions at the hour of divorce or of the definitive sanction of that strange wedding. That mother is myself, Consuelo, who am not a man but a woman. You a woman, said Consuelo, looking with surprise at the thin and bluish, but delicate and truly feminine hand which had taken her own during this discourse. This little worn and wasted old man, replied the problematical confessor. This exhausted and suffering being, whose broken voice has no longer any sex, is a woman worn by sorrow, disease and anxiety more than by age. I am not more than sixty, Consuelo, though under this dress, which I do not wear except in my office as an invisible, I have the aspect of an imbecile octogenarian. However, in the garments of my sex, as in these, I am nothing but a wreck, yet I was a large, strong and beautiful woman of an imposing exterior. But at thirty I was already bent and trembling, as you see me now. And do you know, my child, the cause of that precocious sinking? It was the unhappiness from which I wished to preserve you. It was an incomplete affection, an unhappy union, a horrible effort of courage and resolution which bound me for ten years to a man whom I esteemed and respected without being able to love. A man could not have told you what are the holy rights and the true duties of woman in love. They have formed their laws and their ideas without consulting us. I have, nevertheless, often enlightened the consciences of my associates in that respect, and they have had the courage and the loyalty to listen to me. But believe me, I well knew that if they did not place me in direct communication with you, they would never have the key to your heart, and would perhaps condemn you to an eternal suffering, to a complete abasement, while thinking to ensure your happiness in strength and in virtue. Now open your heart to me entirely. Tell me if this Liberani... Alas, I love him, this Liberani. That is only too true, said Consuelo, carrying the hand of the mysterious Sibyl to her lips. His presence causes me still more fear than that of Albert. But how different is that fear, and how mingled with strange delights. 
His arms are a magnet which attracts me, and his kiss upon my forehead makes me enter another world in which I breathe, in which I exist otherwise than in this. Well, Consuelo, you must love that man and forget the other. I pronounce your divorce from this moment. It is my duty and my right. Whatever you may have said, I cannot accept this sentence before having seen Albert, before he has spoken to me and told me himself that he renounces me without regret, that he returns to me, my word without contempt. You do not yet know Albert, or you fear him, but I, I know him. I have rights over him even more than over you, and I can speak in his name. We are alone, Consuelo, and it is not forbidden me to reveal myself entirely to you, although I form part of the Supreme Council, whom their nearest disciples never know. But my situation and yours are exceptional. Look, therefore, upon my faded features, and tell me if they seem unknown to you. Saying this, the sibyl took off at the same time her mask and her false beard, her skullcap and her false hair, and Consuelo saw the head of a woman, aged and suffering in truth, but of an incomparable beauty of lines, and with a sublime expression of goodness, sadness, and strength. These three habits of the soul, so different and so rarely united in one and the same being, were depicted in the vast forehead, in the maternal smile, and in the deep look of this unknown woman. The form of her head in the lower part of her face announced great strength of primitive organization, but the ravages of sorrow were only too visible, and a kind of nervous tremulousness imparted a vacillation to that beautiful head, which recalled that of Niobe expiring, or rather that of Mary fainting at the foot of the cross. Gray hair, fine and smooth as virgin silk, separated upon her broad forehead, and closed in small bands upon her temples, completed the noble strangeness of that captivating face. At that epoch, all women wore their hair powdered and frizzled, raised behind, and leaving uncovered the bare and bald forehead. The sibyl had tied hers in the manner least embarrassing under her disguise, without thinking that she adopted the style most in harmony with the cut and expression of her face. Consuela contemplated her a long while, with respect and admiration. Then suddenly, struck with surprise, she cried out, seizing both her hands. Oh, my God, how you do resemble him. Yes, I resemble Albert, or rather Albert resembles me prodigiously, replied she. But have you never seen a portrait of me? And seeing that Consuela made vain efforts of memory, she added to assist her. A portrait which resembled me as much as art is permitted to approach reality, and of which I am now only the shadow. A large portrait of a young, fresh, brilliant woman, with a waist of gold brocade covered with flowers in precious stones, a purple mantle, and black hair escaping from clasps of rubies and of pearls to fallen curls upon the shoulders. That is the dress I wore more than forty years ago on the day after my marriage. I was beautiful, but it was not to be so long. I already had death in my soul. The portrait of which you speak, said Consuelo, becoming pale, 
is that giant's castle in the chamber which Albert inhabited. It is that of his mother, whom he had hardly known, and whom he nevertheless adored, whom he thought he saw and heard in his ecstasies. Can you then be a near relative of the noble Wanda du Prochlis? And consequently, I am Wanda du Prochlis herself, replied the sibyl, recovering some firmness in her voice and attitude. I am the mother of Albert and the widow of Christian de Rudelstadt. I am the descendant of Jean Siska of the Chalice and the mother-in-law of Consuelo. But I wish no longer to be other than her friend and her adopted mother, because Consuelo does not love Albert, and Albert must not be happy at the expense of the happiness of his companion. His mother! You, his mother! cried Consuelo, trembling, as she fell at the knees of Wanda. Are you then a specter? Were you not mourned as dead at Giant's Castle? It is now twenty-seven years, replied the sibyl, since Wanda de Prachelich, Countess de Rudelstadt, was buried at Giant's Castle, in the same chapel and under the same stone where Albert de Rudelstadt, attacked by the same disease and subject to the same epileptic crisis, was buried last year, a victim to the same error. The sun would never have risen from that horrible tomb if the mother, attentive to the danger which threatened him, had not watched, invisible, over his agony and had not presided with anguish at his inhumation. It was his mother who saved a being, still full of strength and life, from the worms of the sepulchre to which he had already been abandoned. It was his mother who rescued him from the yoke of a world in which he had lived only too long and in which he could no longer live to transport him to this mysterious world, to this impenetrable asylum in which she herself had recovered, if not health of body, at least the life of the soul. It is a strange history, Consuelo, and you must know it in order to understand that of Albert, his sad life, his pretended death and his miraculous resurrection. The Invisibles will not open this session for your initiation until midnight. Listen to me then, and may the emotion caused by this strange recital prepare you for those which still await you. End of chapter 32